all the people I engage with on the political left don't seem to realize this. They, they, they seem to think the world started in 2010 and everything that's gone wrong since, including, you know, the more painful aspects of austerity was some kind of political choice that the coalition partners adopted out of some perverse wish to punish people who consume public services. It's complete nonsense. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the podcast and today I'm speaking with former government minister Vince Cable and his wife Rachel Smith who've written a book reflecting on their time in politics from around the financial crash all the way to the 2019 election. Vince was a cabinet minister in the coalition government from 2010 to 2015, secretary of state for business and before that was the liberal democrat treasury spokesman during the financial crash. Many listeners may be aware of my view that we're still dealing with the repercussions of the crash of 2008, and so it's interesting to listen to Vince, who had a front row seat during that time, and in dealing with government spending from 2010. We also discuss foreign policy, including Ukraine, Russia, China, as well as Brexit. Links to their memoir are in the show notes, as well as a blog written by Vince on our website, perfect for those listeners from the Modern British Political History podcast. Coming up, I've got Elizabeth I with Stephen Virapen, The Dark Ages, and Tom Holland chats with me about history. Until then, I'll hand you over to Vince Cable and Rachel Smith talking with me about the coalition government. Vince Cable, Rachel Smith, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on, so thank you very much for joining me. And... I wanted to kick off, really, because we're talking about your memoir, both. Well, really, Rachel, it's your it's your memoir, isn't it, with Vince as well. But but we get your perspective quite strongly in this memoir, don't we? Well, um, in the first half, there's a lot of bits because he used press cuttings to remember and to get a perspective on what it looked like from outside. And then in the second half, when he wasn't in office, that he had a very vague memory of the sequence of events. And so my journal, which was very intermittent, um, located the, 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 the text um, and the narrative a bit. And so it, we started doing it like the other way on. So my bit and then he wrote his bit. Right. And I was reading... The blog that you've written for us, which when this goes out, our listeners can, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's very interesting because when talking about political memoirs, you, you've written in the blog that there's, there are some very good ones and there's some very boring ones. So what was that like to, to write? Were you, uh, I guess the more spicier it becomes, the more interesting it is. But at the same time, you don't want to, I guess, betray confidences and that can ruin relationships. I mean, how do you walk that rather fine line? Well, I'm assuming it's a fine line. It might not be. <laughs> yes, I think it can be. Um, we certainly didn't want to lose friends. It, we didn't want, it wasn't supposed to be a gossip column. It was supposed to be, in one way, a, a serious look at what it's like when your spouse is in high office. And you're, I, I mean, I'm very, was very committed to the project. It wasn't that I was a reluctant trailing spouse, but you, you can't participate in bits of it but you do want to be supportive. And, and and we haven't heard from Vince yet. Vince, the life of a, of a politician, of an MP in Westminster, 
It's a lot of late nights. It's a lot of, I'm assuming it is, particularly if you're on the front bench or as a spokesperson for the, for the Lib Dems and then in government. Home life must be just so weird and, and probably quite difficult for listeners to appreciate. Yeah, it, it is It is very hard work. I mean, if, if you take the job seriously, of course, there are some MPs who don't and uh, just uh, take home the money and uh, enjoy themselves in other ways. But but if you take it seriously, and particularly if you get to senior level and ministerial level, there is a, there's a lot of pressure. And it's it's partly, of course, time and the fact that your time, your time isn't your own and you're... you're having to organize your life around party whips and uh, political events. But there's quite a lot of emotional pressure too. You know, the, the public things, when you find you're under attack, difficult relationships with colleagues um, or other people, which can be quite fraught. And uh, as Rachel said, you know, when we actually wrote this, one of the things we were quite careful about was our relationship with friends, um, the ones who were politically in, engaged with us. Um, because, you know, even quite friendly comments uh, re read about other people, you know, can be interpreted in an, un, you know, in an unflattering way. Um, so there were one or two cases where we actually asked our friends, is is this your, you know, your, your um, recollection of these events? Uh, in some cases, we basically took a risk and uh, uh, commented about them in our own way, and and hoped they would uh, they would carry it off. Um, and one or two cases, we we have ruffled feathers, and we've subsequently had to smooth the feathers down. So that that side of it was was a bit tricky. But going back to your basic question, you know, the political life is is difficult if you take it seriously uh and i've been very lucky with rachel and, and indeed i i before rachel uh, olympia was was my first wife uh and she you know kept me going through very difficult years when there, it was so easy to give up i mean there was a 30-year gap between my first standing for parliament and getting in and there were numerous times when you you know you're you're inclined to shrug your shoulders and say to hell with it let's go off and do something else but you know so you needed that kind of backing and support and similarly you know after 2001 when I um, got to know Rachel again um, you know very difficult periods particularly in the coalition times and you you, you desperately needed somebody to talk to to go over the issues to make sure that your perspective wasn't hopelessly distorted, which it is if you're in the middle of a cockpit, you know. So um, both in the coalition times and at party leader times, um, you know, Rachel was immensely supportive, you know, partly in practical terms, but in emotional terms, being there to to go over issues and, and talk about them to somebody you trust. And Rachel at home, does that mean you sort of effectively have to write Vince off? He's He's... He's going to be in Parliament or his depart his, his ministerial department, and so you just won't see him very much during, well, during the week. Well, in in the coalition period, um, I was still farming at the beginning, so I had a, a rather good excuse to be in the countryside, uh, which is a place I like to be, uh, and I've done it for many many years, decades. So I was very involved with that, and I was went on being involved with that. So it was good in a way that I I was busy with my own stuff and we both have you know, children and grandchildren so uh, th there's a, a hinterland of family 
stuff going on, but we didn't have immediate responsibility for anyone except ourselves. Because when you've got young family and, and you're in one household, you've got enormous pressures on you, which we actually didn't have in that way. So I wanted to, um, Vince, I wanted to talk a little bit about obviously your, your more recent political career. I say recent, sort of starting around 2008 is probably when you, your name became quite prominent because of the financial crash. And I think you'd had, well, not many politicians came out of the financial crash particularly well, but one could probably argue you did. And uh, listeners to this podcast are familiar with, I've I've been ramming it down their throats that the 2008 crash is the disaster that has had many ramifications. And you can argue Trump and Brexit. And I wondered, looking back at it now, do you think we're still suffering from 2008? Well, yes, we are. You know, it's added enormously to the stock of government debt. And and we're still struggling with that problem. But but it's affected us in a deeper way. I mean, going back to the basic premise of your question, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I I often created the metaphor of an economic heart attack, you know, 2008-9. It had an enormously serious impact on the economy, partly because Britain was very exposed. We had some of the biggest banks in the world and they collapsed. Uh, and it affected the economy in all kinds of ways, uh, both in terms of the government budget and the accumulation of debt. It also had the effect of drying up credit. So certainly in the early years of the coalition, it was very difficult to get the banks to lend to particularly small, medium businesses. Um, and so the traditional Keynesian approach to you know, economic slowdown, recession, just, just didn't work. But all the people I engage with on the political left don't seem to realize this. They, they they seem to think the world started in 2010 and everything that's gone wrong since, including, you know, the more painful aspects of austerity, was some kind of political choice that the coalition partners adopted out of some perverse wish to punish people who consume public services. It's complete nonsense. I mean, the alternatives we faced with were set out in what was called the Darling Plan, which was the Labour government's plan to deal with the big accumulation of debt and the and the big deficit that we, fiscal deficit that we walked into in 2010. And it involves spreading the pain over seven years rather than five. I mean, just to give an example, there's a lot of articles in the last few weeks uh, because of the opening of the inquiry into the health effects of the pandemic, if you know, and and very reputable people, um, Professor Marmot, amongst others, saying, you know, one of the big problems of the pandemic was that austerity had such damaging effects on the health service. And if you extrapolate the spending from the great days of um, before 2010, much more should have been and would have been spent. Well, he simply, you know, failed to take account of the fact that there was a big discontinuity. I mean, it, it just wasn't possible to continue as we had done in the past. Um, the, the economy slowed down. There was a massive hit to productivity growth, which hasn't been recovered. Uh, and we, we that when we added to this legacy of government debt, which was then made worse by Brexit, then by the pandemic, then by the war, 
Uh, and those problems we're still living with. It is very much the hangover from the from the financial crisis. And just one final point is that, you know, pursuing that meta, meta, uh, metaphor about the heart attack, um, what happened was that you had to keep the patient alive. So all kind of pipes were stuck into the economy with uh, adrenaline and so on um, in the form of monetary easing. And that in turn has now created all these problems of inflation that we injected this stimulus into the economy that wasn't withdrawn at the right time, it, actually, because it wasn't easy to withdraw it. And it's had an inflationary long term consequence. Vince, so it's 2010, the election is inconclusive, coalition talks. Did you have a sort of preference before you went into the coalition as to which party? Or were you really looking at what, I, I'm going to use the word demands, that's that's probably slightly too aggressive, um, but but the requirements the Lib Dems had w- w- really depended which party would would agree to them rather than a, a particular interest in a party. The sequence of events was this: that in the three or four months in the run up to the election, um, the Lib Dems had been, you know, conducting a scenario planning exercise, if you like, some internal thinking about various outcomes and how we'd respond to them. Uh, Chris Hewn, I think, was leading that exercise with David Law. So, you know, we had some serious thinkers. It wasn't just uh, back of the envelope stuff. There was proper analysis of the both the legal and political ramifications. Um, and we had certainly considered um, the possibility that we might find ourselves in a position where we'd have to work with the Conservatives. So it was, wasn't was a completely shocking uh, outcome. The fact is, temperamentally, I think most of us in the team, not all of us perhaps, uh, would have preferred to work with the Labour people. And indeed, there was a political calculation. Most of us were in Conservative-facing parliamentary seats, so we had a self-interest in aligning ourselves with Labour against the Conservatives. But, But temperamentally, some of us felt more comfortable there. Um, and in my case, I had a good relationship with Gordon Brown. I, you know, I wouldn't say a close friend, but we'd had a lot of, you know, discussions, got got on well, I think, looked at the world in a rather similar way. So I think in my case, I would have been more comfortable, but we had done the analysis and it was very clear when we got the numbers after the 2010 election that there was no viable alternative with Labour. You know, we could have brought in the Scottish Nationalists and the Democratic Unionists, but such an arrangement would have been horrible and unstable, um, whereas a relationship with the Conservatives was at least stable, uh, providing we could get an agreement on policy. I think what most of us in the team hadn't appreciated was that Nick Clegg had, I think, had quite detailed conversations with Cameron. Um, I mean, entirely properly. I mean, party leaders should talk to each other, but but had sort of teed up an arrangement with them that was already half formed when we got round to the um, coalition discussions. And Rachel, how did the discussions affect you and Vince? Were you were you well, sort of whatever happens, I'm behind you, or was it, for God's sake, not Labour or not Conservatives? No, I I, I, I accepted his economic argument about the need for coalition. Um, but I found, obviously, the rest quite uncomfortable. But my role tended to be passing a phone over whenever it rang 
rather than actually participating because that wasn't needed, clearly. I found myself on the agricultural issues, a bit of a protectionist, whereas Vince is a great free trader. And on certain other things, I would be more, I think, um, emotionally left-wing in some way. So I found the whole idea uh, quite uncomfortable at the beginning, but accepted the argument, the intellectual argument, that we needed a stable government and we needed economic stability above all else. And actually, this gets to another question I wanted to ask, which is that when Vince has made a decision that, I mean, do you have rows over political decisions or is it more, I'm not entirely sure I was happy with that. Did you ever have uh, an instance where Vince had done something in government that you really didn't approve of? Well, um, not really. I mean, obviously the student fees was very difficult and um, quite a lot of members of my family were shouting down in my other ear that this was appalling and mustn't happen. Uh, So that was undoubtedly tricky, very difficult. But then Vince was finding it very difficult already. He didn't need anyone else to tell him that this was uh, a a really difficult thing altogether. So no, and I suppose uh, on, on the vote about intervening in Syria, we were on holiday in France. And uh, the idea of going back to do this vote, and then Vince voted with the government for intervention, but in the meantime, um, that vote was lost. And so curiously, he was trying to get back to where I was with a friend in La France Profonde. I mean, it wasn't near near anything. And we knew before he did the outcome of the vote because he was on several trains and so forth. So that was quite kind of funny in a way that we were in the know before he was. That's interesting, actually, because that vote on action in Syria Mm. was actually had quite large repercussions because as a result of that, Obama didn't uh, go in either. Yes, yes. It, it, It turned out it was a very significant vote, very significant decision. And whether things would have been better later in Syria, if we had have done, golly, who knows? I, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a peacenik, so I don't think in general that armed conflict results in anything good. Well, I was actually a bit of a, a hawk, <laughs> although I had big disagreements with Tory colleagues on many issues, but on, on that I didn't. Yeah. yeah. We're speaking as events are unfolding in Russia at the moment, mm. and... Just on that, we're talking, we have been talking conflict. So during the 2010-2015 period, the relationship between the government and the Russian government, Putin wasn't president then, although I guess was all, in all but name. I think he was. Period, wasn't he? I think, was it 2008-2010? Um, well, Medvedev. It was a bit of Medvedev in the middle. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was very much the Putin era. Well, it was... I think difficult to see back now, but but back at that time, you know, Russia was just seen as a an opportunity, a big emerging market. I mean, one of the big roles I was given by Cameron uh, was promoting British exports and foreign investment in these big emerging markets, which in particularly were China, India, and Russia and Brazil, and I went to all of them several times. And in the case of Russia, it was a straightforward case of building up British trade with Russia. 
and I dealt with Putin's uh, economic ministers. That wasn't seen as being a big problem in the relationship. The British embassy, when I was there, sort of introduced me to some dissidents, which suggested that life in Russia wasn't quite as good as it appeared. But, um, you know, as, as a government, we dealt with uh, the government of, in Russia without a problem, with some of the oligarchs, I don't know who I, you know, shook hands with and got to know a little bit. And of course, relations deteriorated very badly um, after the 2014 invasion. So our attempts to build up relationships with Russia stopped at that point. We got into sanctions. But before that, it was um, positive. The, the biggest change, of course, was China. I mean, I was heavily involved in promoting the so-called golden era, a lot of trade investment, um, you know, good relationship with Huawei. I had several visits to China, one of which Rachel came along with. Um, and I still believe that, that that actually there's more opportunity than threat in our relations with China and have written to that effect, to the annoyance of um, some former colleagues. But putting it in context, you know, the earlier part of the last decade was Britain trying to recover from the, um, you know, collapse of the... Um, the, the banking system and the economy and building up emerging market exports and Russia and China were seen in very positive terms. And I was part of that process. The 2014 invasion of, of the Donbass and Crimea. Do you think that the government responded strongly enough? Well, uh, given my role in biz, I, I tended to argue against some of the sanctions. Um, there, was, there was one particularly celebrated case where the British company Subsea 7, which is a very high-tech Scottish company in Aberdeen, uh, was exporting uh, equipment which rescued submariners from submarines. And you, you know the story of the Kursk and, and indeed the story last week. Um, and I thought it was a perfectly sensible, good export order, the kind of thing we should be engaging in. Uh, but then I ran up against strong opposition from the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office who said we shouldn't be exporting anything like that to Russia. It's not our job to save Russian submariners in, in a war situation. So we had, you know, quite a punch up over that. I mean, and I was arguing for more trade rather than less trade. And you've mentioned China and Huawei. Um, you don't think there's any risk because it is owned by the Chinese government, isn't it? Uh, well, Huawei is a private company, a very successful private company. And when I was in the government, I was naturally anxious not to get the wrong side of the security services. So I repeatedly asked their advice. I said, is there a problem here? In fact, Huawei were embedded with things like GCHQ. It wasn't just that they were an ordinary telecoms company. And I was always told there is absolutely no problem. The, 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 it's very good for the UK to have access to this world-class technology. It's better than any other company in the world. And if they do misbehave, we have protocols to stop it happening. And so it's nothing for you to worry about. And actually, the same advice was given later to Theresa May. So it wasn't just me. But the Americans effectively said, no can do. You know, you, you should not deal with Huawei for their own strategic and economic reasons. Um, the nuclear thing was a bit more difficult, but um, the ministers involved, and that was myself, Ed, Davy, Letwin, um, who were involved in the negotiations around uh, the Hinkley Point, 
were actually welcome the fact that the Russia, the Chinese were willing to put in a, a, a an investment, and the quid pro quo was that they could uh, then invest in a new reactor in Bradwell as part of the nuclear power uh, establishment, which they would then use as a kind of prototype to demonstrate Chinese technology, which is absolutely first class and very safe in this area and help them build up their exports. And there's a very clear commercial interest from the Chinese point of view, but there was no security risk, though, you know, people get emotional about this and they say, oh, a nuclear power, you know, James Bond, Goldfinger is going to press some button and, and blow it up. I mean, that was complete nonsense. Uh, it was, um, we'd just been scared off it because of this new Cold War. Well, now we're in this energy problem at the moment. I was reading, I think back in 2010, or certainly the early days of the coalition, I think, I did read recently a uh, a quote from Nick Clegg, who stated that nuclear power stations took too long to build, which is one of the reasons why there wasn't so much investment in them. Had they obviously began thinking about construction, we'd be close to having those power stations coming online now, which would be quite handy, wouldn't it? What What was your view on on nuclear power as as a whole for an energy solution in which is pretty green in the United Kingdom? Well, the Lib Dems had traditionally been opposed to nuclear power. Is one of the policies that had come up through our conference, but it was very clear when we were in government that if we were serious about um, reducing carbon emissions. This was an obvious source, and it also provided a source of energy security because it was a, a diversity. It wasn't climate, climate it wasn't seasonal fluctuation as you get with wind. So it was something we had to do. Of course, it was expensive. Um, the, the the cost of a unit of power is higher than uh, it is from wind and gas, um, and it. It's also long gestation times, but we, we took the plunge. I think it was the right thing to do. And at the moment, the, the biggest hole in Europe is in Somerset, where this enormous project is now taking shape and it will be delivering power in a couple of years. So when we get to 2015 and it's complete wipeout for the Lib Dems, what were you both going through? I, I'll start with with Vince, really. What, what what was going through your mind when you were seeing the results coming in? And you had a healthy uh, healthy majority yourself at, in Twickenham. Yes, I, th I think the, we knew there was going to be uh, we we're going to lose a lot of seats, but we we'd done quite a lot of polling, which suggested that the Lib Dems could probably hold on to thirty, including mine. Um, and we coasted through the earlier part of the 2015 election, believing that that was the case. And certainly my early canvassing in Twickenham was very positive, um, and I was encouraged to go around the country supporting more vulnerable colleagues, which I did. Um, and then the Tories hit us with this devastatingly effective and very sophisticated propaganda campaign, which basically said... If you've got a Lib Dem MP, they're probably very good and, and you like them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. But if you vote for them, you're going to finish up with Red Ed Miliband and the Scottish Nationalists in government, which, of course, is complete nonsense. But it frightened a lot of voters. 
what happened was that, of course, that the, it wasn't a vote against the coalition because the Tory vote went up. It was a vote against us, largely on tactical reasons, though, of course, we'd also alienated some of our uh, Labour tactical voters by going in with the Tories, tuition fees, all that kind of stuff. And Rachel, what was going through your mind that night? Was it sort of, thank God, it's all over, we can relax now, get a bit, <laughs> a little bit of time? Uh, there certainly was a little bit of that, although that night was particularly awful. And so we were advised, and we did, rush A, rush back to the countryside, but B, join Vince up to the local gym on day one, which proved to be a very good tactic. But it, without the countryside to escape to, I think it would have been even more difficult to sit in Twickenham with everybody being extremely sympathetic, at least all, of course, all our mates being extremely sympathetic. Um, and it just was emotionally extremely difficult for Vince, which I found understandable. I mean, I've only ever stood at that very local level for elections and losing them is, is difficult even at that level. You feel personally rejected, uh, however much it wasn't your fault. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it was very, very hard on him. Vince, I don't want to force you to go through this traumatic night again, but the... Uh... The rejection by the voters, is it quite brutal in that, you know, you're almost immediately your pass is rescinded and, and you have to clear out your office pretty quick, just like the prime minister when, when that changes? Yes, it, it is. Um, I mean, what was happening in Twickenham was I was bumping into lots of people who said, oh, we're so sorry you lost. We would have voted for you if you thought you were in trouble, but but we thought you were nice and safe. So we decided to uh, we could vote for somebody else. Um and some of that was sincere and some of it wasn't. But but anyway, since I got back two years later with an enormous majority, it was fairly clear that uh, quite a lot of voters had got, um, you know, regrets for, for what they did. But it, but in terms of dealing with it personally, I mean, that, that it was at that point that, 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 you know, Rachel was a phenomenal source of support, emotional support. Um, and you know, to, also my children uh, who were, were helpful too. But what happened is we went away to the country. The following day, we, we it was a nice sunny day. We thought about the future uh, and all the things we could now do that we were liberated from the the grind of parliamentary schedule. And I think because we're both fairly positive people and practical people, and not inclined to depression. We we actually came away thinking, well, this is an opportunity and not just uh, an awful experience. We're going to make the best of it. And, and, and actually we did. When it comes to clearing out the office, when, when you're a minister, you have to clear out your office before the election. So there, were, there, were, there was this huge clear out from um, one Victoria Street that went on before the election. And that got quite comic because we had some personal things, um, some ceramics and a picture or two and so on that were ours, that were in his office. And we had an expedition to go and get them. A, forgetting about the um, congestion charge, because we never drive into London, we go on public transport. Uh, and B, you know, uh, others helping us in the basement to get these things into a car. And we had this sort of procession of his staff holding things. It looked like a sort of raid, um, an, an actual burglary. It was really very funny. So there are some funny moments in government. And and as Vince just said, it's Phoenix from the Flame stuff, re-elected in 2017 with a massive mm. majority. But were you thinking, really, <laughs> do we have to go through all this again? <laughs> there was a little bit of that. Yeah, here we go again. 
Yes, there was for me. But nonetheless, I, I mean, from Vince's point of view, he was vindicated in that he got back with a huge majority. And of course, the party needed him more than ever because the, the, the numbers were so small. Nick Clegg had lost his seat, hadn't he, in 2017? Yes, yes, yes. No, you know, it, it would. So it was a very small band of. of Lib Dem MPs in Parliament at that point. So did that make party management quite easy, Vince? <laughs> it did at the beginning, uh, not at the end. No, it, it, it's, 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 I think it's, there's part of a, a cyclical process when you're a party leader. The, the, there's an enormous amount of goodwill at the beginning. And then people get impatient. They somehow assume that if you make a couple of speeches, uh, the party's public opinion poll will double and, and you know, you're on the way to winning the next election. If if it doesn't happen, somehow you've been negligent and haven't been trying. There's, there's a bit of that. Uh, and I experienced that full cycle. But certainly at the beginning, well, it would have been better in a way if um, Ed Davey or Joe Swinson had decided to compete with me. But they, they didn't for you know good personal reasons. So I got in by default as the party leader. So I, although I went around the country meeting all the local activists, it wasn't in that competitive spirit that that really engaged them and so it, it was a slightly weak start and not my fault but but you didn't have the um benefit of a, a you know an electoral mandate within the party but i think initially it went well and i committed the party to the um people's vote campaign a fairly aggressive approach to brexit um, and which the activists like. We had an enormous surge in membership, which partly I'd inherited from Tim Farron, um, but it kept growing. We were seen as the anti-Brexit party. We had, a, I think, a, the membership was well over 100,000, which is about three times what it was in the heyday of Charles Kennedy. So, yeah, there were some good things happening, but then it became very scratchy and frustrating. We didn't have any by-elections. The only thing I could point to were good local government election results. We were winning quite a lot of local by-elections. 2018 result was good, but not brilliant. It was only in 2019 that we got the real breakthrough in local government with, with you know, really very big gains, biggest in our history, I think and then followed up by the European campaign. But by then, I'd already decided to, um, you know, pass on to the next generation. So you mentioned the people's vote there. I I mean, I voted Remain and a passionate uh, EU Remainer, I suppose. But I always assume, I, I thought the people's vote idea was a bit risky. It seemed to me that it would almost certainly result in defeat. But obviously, you don't think that because you were a, a, a prominent supporter of having a, a, a second vote. Are you confident that that would have been won? Because I don't think it would have been. Well, it was touch and go, I think. Now, my views were a bit more nuanced than perhaps it came across to the public. Initially, after the referendum, I thought we should accept the result and work for a kind of soft Brexit with keeping the single market and the customs union and the economic side. Um, Tim Farron was much more gung-ho on, uh, you know, returning to the European Union. But once 
I'd, I'd become party leader. And once Theresa May had made this commitment to leave the economic structures of the economic union, she didn't have to. I mean, it wasn't mandated in the referendum. But once the, she decided to tear up the, you know, the, the the core bit of our membership, I thought we we would then justified in going for a hard line opposition. Uh, and you know, trying to get a, a a referendum on the outcome of the negotiations. Um, as the climax approached, it was fairly clear in Parliament that we were about 10, 20 votes short, that with the Lib Dems, the SNP, Labour defectors, and a few courageous Tories, we could muster a big vote, but it was still a little bit short. And the big question then was, should we dilute our policy and settle for just staying in a customs union, which was the, you know, the Ken Clark compromise, or should we remain uncompromising and the party of principle Europe and so on? And there was a very strong feeling amongst my colleagues that we had to stay firm with, with the with the hard line. Um, People like Norman Lamb made a very good case for a for for a compromise, but that going for the compromise solution, but that wasn't the the mood in the party at all. And Rachel, what I mean, the Brexit wars, I think everyone looks back on them probably quite glad they're over because it was a pretty horrible time. What was it like to be the spouse of a of an MP during that? I guess well, 2017 to 2019. We did an awful lot of marching, and so. In terms of energy, it was very tiring indeed. But in terms of um, spirit of the party and stuff, it was wonderful. And we, we felt it was a very important battle. And I, to this day, just think it was a, a wrong direction. It just upset me. I mean, I come from a family where uh, my ex-husband's half Dutch and my first child was born in Holland. And we did a lot of traveling in uh, France in particular. And I, I did feel myself to be European, and lots of my family do. And Vince has a Slovakian daughter-in-law, and she was deeply upset. So um, it was quite emotional, but also very exhilarating in one way. I don't, but it was sad that we 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 didn't make we lost that um, vote in the end. We, we we lost the argument, I suppose. But I think now. There are a lot of uh, regretful leavers who think they did get it wrong. Yes, Vince, do, what do you think the future holds regarding Britain's relationship with Europe? As Rachel says, there seems to be a majority now. It's difficult to know whether it's rejoin or would have voted remain. It, it, it's, it's, it depends on the, the polls you look. I but rejoin it. I don't think they want us. Sorry, I, this yeah. Well, that's obviously we're not very good. <laughs> I think rejoin is <laughs> for the for the distant future, really. Mm. Sorry, so Vince. Going back a little bit, I think we need to reflect a bit on why the two thousand and nineteen um, election turned out so badly, and part of it was uh, revoking um, the referendum. I mean, th there was no way people were going to buy that, given that we'd had three or four years of pressing for a, a second or another a referendum to say, oh, forget it, we're just going to cancel the whole thing. That, I, I know that wasn't how Joe 
argued it, but that was how it came across. And it was it was really disastrous for the party and for the Remain campaign, actually. Um, and added to the fact that people were, a lot of soft Tories, as we call them, were absolutely scared stiff of Corbyn. Um, you know, the, the election was lost, Boris Scott, Brexit done. Uh, but but that, that was the background to it. But in terms of where we go from here, there, there isn't much scope for changing the dynamics fundamentally in the short run, partly, as Rachel just said, that the, the Europeans wouldn't have us back, having caused so much disruption. Um, it would probably be on inferior terms. And there is still a very, very hard uh, pro-Brexit group. You know, some people have changed their minds, many haven't. So it would be very divisive again. And it's not at all clear that when the conditions were set out that the people would vote to go back in. I think a better approach is to think over a five to ten year period to work through a series of steps to rejoin uh, European institutions, you know, the research bodies, the customs union, the single market, each of which is quite a difficult step. And if at the end of that, you know, decades time, people feel, well, you know, actually, we, we really ought to be formally part of the European Union, whatever it then is, um, then let's do it. But it's got to be a kind of cautious step by step approach, I think. So you, it sounds like a 20 odd year project. Probably or 15, certainly at the, the least. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you've mentioned Corbyn and 2019 and you originally joined the Labour Party and stood as a candidate and then moved to the SDP is that right in the early 80s? Yes I was part of the breakaway Roy Jenkins Shirley Williams group I mean actually I unlike some of them and I was reasonably comfortable in the Labour Party mostly I'd worked for John Smith as his special advisor um there were a lot of mainstream Labour people I got on very well with and felt at home with but I lived in a part of London, you know, suburban London, where the Labour Party was completely mad. I mean, it, if you remember those days, um, it was bad enough in places like Hampstead and, and um, further north in Haringey, where Corbyn came from. But the Labour parties around the countries were, were, you know, were absolutely in the kind of lunatic fringe of the militant tendency. And just going to one of the meetings was so utterly infuriating and dispiriting that a lot of us who were then mainstream Labour just felt we couldn't take any more of it and, and left and joined the SDP. But And of course, we thought uh, the Labour Party would then break. Well, it didn't, thanks to Tony Blair. But the, um, the virus of, you know, extreme revolutionary leftism you know remained in dormant state and then reappeared in the form of Jeremy Corbyn um, so in a way history was relived um, in the last few years. Do you think that I guess that dormant strain will be in the Labour Party forever? Not necessarily. Stam has done a very good job actually in basically very ruthless in, in sort of cutting it out of the party but I think what could well happen is we get a period of Labour government. Uh, we may or may not be part of it, but a period of Labour government, um, people will get disillusioned because there's not a great deal they can do given the economic position of the country. 
And disillusionment will take various forms. I mean, one of it may be, you know, swing back to the nationalistic new Tory party, kind of UKIP reborn. Uh, and some of it will take the form of hard left politics. Um, you know, they've got some allies in the Green Party. Uh, and of course, all those people who belonged to uh, Momentum, they're still there. I mean, they got, they've been either thrown out or left the Labour Party, but they're still around. And they will form a new a new movement on the far left. So I think the, the next few years could be quite uncomfortable in, in British politics, both on the left and the right. But then it sounds like that's an opportunity for a centrist party like the Liberal Democrats. It is, um, providing we, you know, we have a change in the voting system. I mean, I don't want to rehearse all the arguments, which you know very, very well. But um, as long as we're competing with, you know, moderate Labour and the Starmer, moderate Tories, of whom there's still a few left, um, we're in a very crowded space and we're the third party and we've got all the problems to overcome in first past the posts. But if, um, if 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 it does happen that we get a change in the voting system, there will be more opportunity to get MPs elected. Um, you know, anything is then possible. Uh, Rachel, so so this book, we're, get, we're running out of time and I know you're, you're both very busy, but Rachel, this this was... This book was written during lockdown. Is that right? I mean, a lot of people were being very productive during lockdown. Was... It, was, it was put together during lockdown. My bit, of course, came from my journals, which were already long since written, um, without which I wouldn't have done it and couldn't have done it. But for, for Vince, yes, he, he uh, got into it during lockdown. And we were in the countryside for nearly a year, 90% of the time. So yes, we we worked uh, quite solidly at it at that point. I think one of, one of the motives, I mean, because we had so much time and, and opportunities to reflect, I was getting more and more agitated about the way the Lib Dems had been written out of history. You know, we had we had done something quite brave. We'd achieved a great deal in the coalition years. It was either ignored or attributed to the Conservatives. Uh, we'd stopped a lot of bad things happening, but nobody was saying that. And I felt, you know, I, I didn't need to put the history on the record as somebody was at the middle of it all. But I couldn't because I only had a kind of partial memory of what had happened. And then we discovered, I, I didn't realise this, but Rachel had actually kept very good diaries of most You didn't know. Of, um, <laughs> well, I knew she was busily scribbling away in a little exercise. But, but they I weren't secret. They were not secret diaries. But I hadn't realised quite how good they were, actually. <laughs> oh. A lot of it was personal, and that yeah. some of it was reflections on the time. And we realised if we put the two together, we had something serious to say. And um, we haven't yet had a big readership, but all the people who've read it thought think that it's original and interesting and and adds to the history of the time. Well, that's a great way to end it, Vince. A history of, of the uh, of the time. Thanks very much. I'll put a link in the show notes for listeners to go to for that. And it just leaves me to say, Vincent and Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. An interesting chat on life in government. Plenty more great history coming up, including Elizabeth I, The Dark Ages and Tom Holland. So do please subscribe and join me for those. In the meantime, thank you 
and good night.